Hi, folks. Welcome back to the Chris Yeh podcast. This is Chris Yeh. I am delighted today to be joined by a very special guest, Trevor Loy, who is the founder and managing director of Flywheel Ventures, also a lecturer at Stanford University, also a proud fellow Stanford alum, though I think you were a year before me in school. Is that right, Trevor? Yeah, I think that that's, I think that's right. I'm undergrad, undergrad class of 93. Yeah, and I was class of 1994, so we would have been on campus at the same time, but probably not taking the same classes. And, and you missed the uh, Loma Prieta earthquake in 1989, which was my welcome to Stanford. Yes. Uh, what, what freshman dorm were you in when the earthquake occurred? Uh, Larkin, which is in Stern Hall, mm-hmm. which is still there. <laughs> The amazing thing about Stanford is I go onto campus and there's all these incredible buildings, all these incredible facilities. The whole thing has been reshaped. Everything has changed and improved with the exception of undergraduate housing, where they still have us in the same 1950s era bomb shelter dorms. Yeah, exactly. For the purpose of earthquakes, it wasn't the worst place to be in a 1950s era bomb shelter concrete building, but uh, certainly from a stylistic and uh, comfort level, they, they could do with a little upgrade on that, I think. Yeah, especially if you've ever been and seen any of, say, the graduate student housing, especially the business school housing, it is no comparison. Yeah, for sure. So I thought what we might do is just to bring people up to speed on the different things you've done in your career, because you've taken the path not taken in the venture capital world. So I'd love for people to hear a little bit about that before we dive into something you've become a huge expert in, which is the CARES Act and the Paycheck Protection Program. So the <laughs> most, uh, the biggest thing about your venture capital career is you've spent most of it in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Now talk about how that happened and what it's been like. Sure. Um, it, it's probably easiest if I, if I do it chronologically. So I grew up in the Midwest, rural farm community, uh, went to Stanford undergrad, studied electrical engineering, uh, started my career as a chip designer at Intel on the original Pentium generation, and uh, then uh, simultaneously did a master's in EE uh, while working at a couple of startups, one in the graphics chip sector, in the mid nineties uh, and then another one in the uh, sort of wireless systems space. And then did another master's at Stanford uh, in what used to be called industrial engineering. It's now called management science and engineering. Uh, did another startup in the digital music space in the dot-com era. Uh, and, but, but most importantly of all of that, while I was doing the uh, ms and master's degree, was fortunate enough to hook up with a professor named Tom Byers, who at that time was just starting a program called the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. And at the time was really the first entrepreneurship center uh, inside of an engineering school at a major research university. Prior to that, it had been historically thought that entrepreneurship was subject matter to be taught only in business schools. And so Tom's big vision, which I was just fortunate to be in the right place at the right time to help him build was the idea that we should be teaching entrepreneurship to engineering and science students. Um, and the reason I, I emphasize this, I, I'm proud of that program, which by the way, it's at stvp.stanford.edu. And there's a great resource that they do, which is free for the world that I actually helped create 
25 years ago, which is called eCorner, uh, which is eCorner.stanford.edu. So plugs aside from that, um, it was the first experience I had with taking entrepreneurship education and exposure, which had been you know, fundamental to my earlier career in doing startups, which was not a thing that I grew up knowing was a thing you could do. Um, you know, my father was a lawyer, my mother was a, a high school teacher. So not super exposed to entrepreneurship or uh, tech startups and certainly not venture capital uh, until I got to Stanford and, and, you know, sort of was lucky enough to get exposed to that. So anyway, um, the reason I mentioned this is my whole career, the thing that I feel like is actually the common thread is the idea of identifying groups of people, can be industry sectors, can be educational domains, can be geographies, who haven't historically had the same access to entrepreneurship education and exposure that you know, your average uh, Stanford engineering student now you know, we take for granted. And so, but the first experience ironically was actually bringing it to Stanford engineering students. People don't, people assume that that's always been the case, but prior to the very late nineties or you know, mid to late nineties, when Tom had this vision, um, essentially all entrepreneurship education and exposure at Stanford even was only to MBA students. Uh, and so since then, I decided to take it, you know, beyond engineering at Stanford and uh, to a geographic region of the U.S., the, you know, the Rocky Mountains in Southwest, uh, which we can talk more about if you wish. I, I also have been more recently in the last decade doing that uh, in international jurisdictions and emerging regions, working with governments and sovereign wealth funds and such, uh, particularly uh, the last three, four years in the Middle East. Uh, because of the importance I think that has to do with bringing geopolitical you know, stability and opportunity to that region. And then lastly, doing it at a federal policy level, which I've done primarily, uh, you know, was honored to serve on the board of the National Venture Capital Association about 10 years ago, uh, ironically, right after the 2008 crash. And so my tenure there involved working on policy designed to help VC and startups through that economic downturn which is why I kind of have been tapped on the shoulder and drafted back in onto the field now, because I happen to have worked on the similar situation that we haven't seen in the last 10, 12 years. Well, I'm very glad that you have those experiences and that somebody has been smart enough to drag you back in. We'll definitely have to talk some other time offline about the Middle East, because I've actually spent a fair amount of time there over the past couple of years. would love to compare notes, but uh, let's talk about Santa Fe, New Mexico. You didn't grow up there. So what brought you there in particular? So um, there, there's an interesting thing, and, and this has entirely to do with just who I am as a person. I was lucky enough to realize very early in my life that there was something different about me than, than most other, oh, I guess, people I would say you encounter in kind of upper middle class knowledge worker uh, sectors. Uh, you know, I didn't grow up in, in a suburban upper middle class, you know, sort of knowledge worker environment. Uh, certainly the home I grew up in was put a huge pre premium on it, education, but I grew up in, you know, a rural blue collar kind of farm community. Uh, and the thing that I loved the most about growing up there was wide open spaces. Now, granted, this was the Midwest where the wide open spaces are pretty flat for, you know, a long distance. Uh, and so the first time I experienced mountains, which was when I was in high school and I did a trip to Colorado, I realized that I wanted to live my life in places that had wide, wide open space, but that, you know, in, in more of a mountainous setting. 
Um, and so the, the second part of that was I have this great love of road trips. Uh, it's one of the most relaxing meditative things I've found to do. And when I was an undergrad at Stanford, ironically, you know, didn't have a lot of money to always be flying back and forth. And so um, would often drive back and forth both as an undergrad and then, you know, after that, when I lived in California after graduating for a few years, would drive back cross country between the Midwest and, and the West Coast. Uh, and I had a rule, which is I could never take the same road twice. So over the course of doing probably 20 round trips, driving back and forth, each time over a different route, I, I just came to fall in love with the American West, uh, which uh, one of my favorite authors is a, something we could talk about another time, uh, an author named Wallace Stegner, who, who actually had important Stanford ties as well, uh, called the American West, the geography of hope. Uh, and so that's always kind of resonated with me. So I knew that I wanted to live in that sort of part of the country. And then there's a far more nerdy story of how it came to be Santa Fe as opposed to other places like Boulder or Boise or Salt Lake. But we can talk more about there. I've gone on probably long enough about all that. Well, no, that is fantastic. And you're absolutely right about Wallace Stegner and the important role he played because I actually studied creative writing at Stanford as an undergraduate oh, and the graduate program at Stanford. That, yeah. yeah. The graduate program at Stanford, uh, the, the students are Stegner fellows. It's the most prestigious creative writing program in the country. And Wallace Stegner's shadow looms large over Stanford, the American West as well. So another great reason for us to have a conversation without the recording on to really get into some of these details. Yeah, it would be great. I'd look forward to it. So you've been there in Santa Fe. You've been investing around the country. Obviously, I think it's very different to invest in other parts of the country and other parts of the world than in Silicon Valley, where in, in many ways, it's a company, it's an industry town. So what has been the difference? What's it been like investing in these different parts of the country? Yeah, it's funny. You mentioned the company town analogy. Um, once somebody once said, I said that to somebody and they said, it's not even you know, an industry town, it's a single company town and everybody just changes projects a lot, which is you know, kind of, <laughs> if you trace where the money comes from, you know, it is kind of true, right? So anyway, um, I, I think the thing that I would say is most interesting to me and most important for people who are building startups, whether they're bootstrapped or venture backed or, or whatever, we can get into those finer distinctions later, uh, in these other regions is to be able to go back to first principles, you know, as an engineer, I, I, I use the analogy of deriving equations from the original conditions. And what happens a lot in Silicon Valley, because it's been, you know, multiple decades, multiple generations now of entrepreneurs and investors and thought leaders and et cetera, is we have all these equations that we use in Silicon Valley that, you know, people just take for granted as now being axioms but they're not, they're, they're just equations that fit the conditions, you know, over which uh, Silicon Valley has evolved over these decades. When you try to apply those equations in other situations, people sometimes forget that the original conditions that made those equations work are, are not true. And so surprise, surprise, people find that uh, the equations that work in Silicon Valley stop working. But I find that a lot of Silicon Valley people ironically don't, stop and rethink it. And so one of the things I find most rewarding about doing this work is working with entrepreneurs who themselves are, are faced with having to start from scratch and derive their own equations. And doing that along with the entrepreneurs as an investor and then trying to you know, 
cross-pollinate that thinking across other places uh, where people are deriving equations themselves as well, I, I find much more interesting than just trying to apply, you know, the canon of Silicon Valley equations to startups on Sand Hill Road. And I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, one of the analogies I often use, which has been around for a long time, I think it was a famous Japanese nobleman, Count Hayashi, who first said it, but a fish doesn't realize it's swimming in water. And That's people right. in Silicon Valley are just these fish. It's not even that they are lazy and, uh, and incapable of, of deriving their own equations. It's just they don't even think that it's necessary. They don't even realize how inculcated it has been, how incepted it has been into their minds. So I appreciate when there's original thinkers who realize, you know what, there's a lot of different ways to do things. Yep, I couldn't agree more. By the way, I'm sure you know this too, but is that great speech by David Foster Wallace about called This Is Water, which he, he, he riffs off that Japanese proverb. Now, one of the, we should definitely have a, a literary conversation later as well, because it's obvious <laughs> you're a man of culture and refinement, which is also very rare in the venture industry. Uh, and another reason we should have more conversations. But uh, I did promise that we'd start getting towards the substance of the CARES Act and purchasing, uh, sorry, the Paycheck Protection Plan. But before we do that, as a quick segue or aperitif to clear the palate, I'm going to ask you a personal interesting question don't worry it's not going to be too intrusive my question is just this what is the first concert you remember attending the first concert that you personally decided to go to as opposed to say a classical music concert that your parents dragged yeah. you to yeah so uh i was a huge u2 fan as a kid uh even back in the unforgettable fire era and then the first concert I went to was in uh, the, at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign at the basketball arena there, uh, whatever year it was, but it was right after the Joshua Tree came out. And um, so I, I still think it was one of the best concerts I ever went to. You obviously probably biased a little bit by the fact that it was my first one, but, but even accounting for that, it was amazing. And um, the interesting thing was it was on a school night and I guess I was probably a junior in high school and I'm trying to think would have been 16-ish. Uh, but anyway, so uh, I won't go into all the details in case my mother listens to this, but the way in which I had to go about arranging so that uh, it was feasible logistically to attend that concert an hour away from where I grew up on a school night was, uh, I'll just say, good practice for uh, figuring out how to get legislation through Congress. Interesting. Well, uh, can you share any of the details? Again, non-incriminating. I'm sure the statute of limitations has expired. <laughs> I would hope so by now. Um, yeah. So let's just say that uh, I had to do, uh, which was true, actually, I, I had to do a project with a couple other kids in one of my classes who happened to be the kids I also wanted to go to the concert with. So we literally, one of us drove and the rest of us were in the backseat work. Literally, we worked on this project. Like, I don't even remember how, because we didn't have laptops back then. So we must have like had legal pads or something, notebooks. But anyway, we actually wrote like the part of the paper on the way, <laughs> on the way there. So we did, it, was, it wasn't a complete fiction of, we really did have to work together. We just didn't, you know, clarify the venue in which we would be uh, doing the collaborative work. Everything you Everything told your mother was true. true. It just wasn't the whole truth. 
Yeah, that's a good way to say it. Yeah, which again is uh, probably a pretty good description of at least some people the way they approach public policy. And since you did get a chance to participate in the Joshua Tree tour, which is gone down in history as one of the great tours of all time, what were the favorite songs you listened to at that concert? Like, uh, were you familiar with the Joshua Tree already at that point? I think it had been out for maybe a few weeks, mm -hmm. maybe even a couple of months. So yeah, we like kind of knew all the songs. Um, Where the Streets Have No Name is still like the, the, that's the image that comes into my mind is that song playing. It was just unbelievable. It is a fantastic song. And just again, that classic edge guitar work, making it distinctively U2 from the instant it begins. There was also the, uh, you know, I had all these friends because I was a high school debater. And so I had all these friends in suburban Chicago who were super into, you know, U2 and, and stuff like that. But, you know, I grew up kind of in a more rural farm community, which was a little bit more along the lines of Bon Jovi. Um, and, and Mellencamp. So U2 was actually not a thing. I think my friends and I were probably among the half dozen or dozen students in the whole school who even knew who they were. So it also had that wonderful feeling of when you're a kid that you're on to something that other people aren't, which is you know also a pretty good feeling that it's addictive. And I feel like as a VC, my whole career has been trying to recover that feeling and you know once in a while successfully doing so. Well, that is fantastic. And I love how details like that really humanize folks. I mean, it's very easy to get caught up in the professional resume, the fact that you've done all these amazing things, been on the board of the NVCA and all this. But at the end of the day, we're all just teenagers sneaking out to see a U2 concert. 100%. Yep. Yep, exactly right. Well, thanks for indulging me with that interlude. I think everyone will really enjoy it. But let's get to the meat of what we originally set out to do, which is to talk about some of the great work you've been doing in understanding and interpreting and spreading the word on the CARES Act and the Paycheck Protection Program. Maybe you can just give us a quick synopsis of what are the important things you feel like you've learned from reading through all this incredible legislation. Yeah, I, I, there's sort of two things that I would say just as at the highest level. The first is what brought me back onto the field. Uh, you, you know, as we mentioned earlier, I, this sort of weird intersection of things I've done just put me in a place where all of a sudden I had something to offer the world at a time where, just like everyone else, I was kind of sitting on my couch and eating potato chips well on my way to gaining the, the proverbial COVID-19, as we joke about. Mm -hmm. um, and looking for something I could do beyond just, you know, being on board calls with my portfolio companies or getting ready for my, for my class, which was actually supposed to start, but then delayed by Stanford. Um, and, and so I, I jumped in, but, but um, another reason was I was starting to see uh, lots of other commentary on, you know, Twitter and other social media in the, in the sort of VC Twitter world about, uh, you know, immediately doing layoffs and pulling all the credit lines and kind of the game plan that people had learned in 2008 uh, and even to a lesser extent going all the way back to 01. And there was just something that struck me uh, as a little bit not wrong or right, but more miscalibrated that people were doing the classic thing, you know, that military strategists do, which is they start executing the plan for the last war instead of the one they're in. Mm. Uh, and, and so I, I started poking around because one of the things that seemed clear to me 
was uh, just because I knew about from other channels and relationships I, I have in the public sector, th there was at least going to be a, a, a massive congressional intent, intent to support payroll um, and support, you know, economic, do economic support that would prevent mass layoffs. Uh, and since the layoffs were not necessarily, at least at that time, so this is kind of still mid-March, um, you know, it wasn't that the fundamentals of any particular business were obviously damaged because there was a kind of this exogenous pandemic causing all this. It wasn't a business cycle like normal. And so I, I started sort of tweeting, like, I think, you know, don't fight the last war. Like, try to adapt your response of your business to, to what this situation calls for. And if you're going to be in a position to keep your employees on the payroll, even if they're not going to be as productive as normal, that, that might put you in a much better place whenever we get through all this to resume and, and have your business still intact, rather than, you know, executing the let's go back to three people sitting on ice chests in their garage, you know, while we wait for, for the economy to recover. Now, I think, unfortunately, and we'll go into the details, the way that this has rolled out since the legislation did pass and, and had this important intent of supporting payroll for all kinds of businesses, uh, logistically, the rollout has been problematic, shall we say, and, and certainly slow. And my worry is that it's a little bit too little too late. And by the time that they get this really working, uh, I think, you know, as we see from the unemployment numbers now every week, you know, a lot of companies now are having to do massive layoffs. So they, they can't even wait to get the loan, even if they're eligible for it, even if they apply for it. So now I'm working on some other stuff, trying to find more direct ways to get money to companies that, that don't involve these lengthy processes and infrastructures uh, scale up. So we'll see how that goes. But, but just to summarize, in, in, you know, the intent of the program from the policymakers was and is to protect the payroll uh, and keep employees in the jobs they're in, even if the government effectively has to pay them and subsidize the companies to do that, because it was viewed as way more advantageous in positioning the economy to recover eventually than uh, you know having these massive layoffs and, and moving people on unemployment, because when that happens, people lose the tether to their employer, especially now they're having to move because they can't afford to maybe live in the place that they were living, they can't make rent, so they move home with their parents who might be you know, four time zones or 12 time zones away. And pretty soon you have your, your workforce is scattered across the globe and there's no easy way to pull the band back together, so to speak. Um, in addition to all kinds of other public you know, policy reasons why uh, you'd rather have people keep their jobs than move on to unemployment. So that's the gist of the intent and we can now talk about all the specifics, but uh, sorry for that. And no, no, this is, overview, this, is, but. this is extremely helpful. Now, I think it's my understanding, you can tell me if I'm mistaken, that they have put some provisions in that would allow you to rehire employees, that you could apply for the loan and rehire employees, which would seem like a very smart thing to do. Because again, especially for a lot of companies such as restaurants and the like, they simply couldn't afford on zero revenues to keep people on payroll. Yeah, that's right. There, There is... After you receive, uh, and now we're talking specifically about the PPP loans, um, th there are some other provisions in CARES we might want to touch on, but PPP has definitely been, you know, the, the main focus. Um, and there are provisions 
that allow you uh, during the eight week period after you receive a PPP loan, during which the, you know, is when the tests are being done for how many employees you're supposed to have or whatnot, you can rehire, um, you know, up to the same workforce you had and you won't be penalized in terms of your eligibility for forgiveness uh, of the loan just based on that. So they, they did put that incentive in. My, my concern is that, you know, especially for service, Main Street service businesses like restaurants and bars or whatnot, those are exactly the workers who can't pay rent now, you know, even if they miss up the single paycheck. And so I just know in my own community, people, uh, I was talking to one restaurant owner who's still open doing drive through and he would like to be able to rehire, but he said half his workforce has already moved out of state. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I, I think what people aren't thinking through is the logistics of what happens over eight week period with people who are, you know, service workers and other people making, uh, you know, minimum wage or slightly higher and they're just getting crushed by this. Um, so we could talk about that lots more, but that's my biggest concern with the rehire provision. It sounds good, but can you actually, can you actually do it? Uh, is it actually even feasible? And this just underscores the importance of acting quickly in this time of crisis, right? Not only is it necessary to act quickly because there's exponential spread of a virus, but it's important to act quickly because of how quickly things deteriorate in terms of, as you said, workers moving away, you being unable to reconstitute the workforce and so on. Yeah, the best uh, analogy I heard, I saw was on Twitter and I apologize, I don't remember who tweeted it. So hopefully we can go back and give the person credit. But they said, you know, it's a little bit, if you've ever driven a pickup truck that's overloaded with something in the back, you know, wood or, or, or rocks or, or whatever, and you're going up a hill, it's a manual transmission and you have to stop suddenly because there's an animal or something, you know, to pass or whatever, you know, the, the speed at which if you have to restart your, acceleration, your acceleration in first gear, going uphill with an overloaded pickup, it takes you a very long time to get back to 65 miles an hour, <laughs> you know, no matter how quickly the reason you had to stop was or wasn't. And I feel like that's exactly the situation that we're increasingly gonna be in. Yeah, it, it is unfortunate. Again, is unfortunate. I, I do yeah. think CARES was passed relatively quickly, but it just un, uh, un, underscores the fact that we didn't have the infrastructure in place to get this money to people. And as a result, it had to be done in the form of forgivable bank loans because that was the infrastructure we had in place that would allow us to reach the most businesses. But even then, it is just taking too long. Uh, although, again, I commend the effort. Yeah, I, I, I feel slightly different. Directionally, I agree with you. I think that um, there was an understandable, because CARES moved so quickly for 100% for understandable reasons and for which I totally commend. You can imagine the 2 a.m. hallway conversations on the Hill between staffers trying to figure out how to draft the actual text of this. Thinking um, for political reasons, and again, this is where the whole last war versus current war thing comes in. A lot of people were very worried about the politics of the optics of CARES in the context of how TARP back in 2008 and nine was viewed. Um, and so they really wanted to make sure that uh, this wasn't a program that was perceived that was only going to end up going to big companies. So there was, it was really important to say, okay, well, how do we carve out a section of CARES that is exclusively 
and explicitly aimed at small business, you know, in air quotes, whatever that means. Uh, okay, well, we need to, you know, that needs to have its own separate funding allocation. Okay, check. All right, well, how do we, you know, how will we make sure that the money is going to get to small businesses as opposed to going through Wall Street? Well, wait, we have this thing called the Small Business Administration, and surely they must be the agency best positioned to deal with the 30 million small businesses in the U.S., uh, not to mention the additional 25 million eligible applicants that CARES added to that when they added nonprofits and in independent contractors and, you know, the widest possible set of, of people who have payroll, even if it's to themselves. And so I, there was this kind of natural reaction of let's use SBA, which I totally understand, you know, how that, that conversation plays out. What I don't think people realized is that SBA is a pretty small agency and putting aside, you know, whatever you think about the efficacy of their infrastructure or whatnot, it's not true that SBA was positioned to actually work with all the small businesses in America. The IRS is actually, in my view, a much better agency because they already have, you know, 941 filings from everyone. They already have payroll data. They have direct deposit information for, for many. Um, so I, I sort of feel like in retrospect, and I think that the phase four or what some people call CARES 2 is going in a direction where they're going to try and do something that maybe does th run through more through IRS uh, just because they're in a better position. And then lastly, if you actually care about the fraud or, you know, the, the kind of long-term um, governance that, you know, turned out in TARP actually worked quite well. Uh, IRS actually has much stronger teeth in terms of doing enforcement after the fact than SBA does. And I think that that would allow IRS to act more quickly to push money out to people and then tax or enforce it back later after the fact, you know, for, for anyone who sort of abused or took advantage of that. I think with SBA, it, they're just because of the way it works, it's slower to get money out. And then they're also going to have a harder time enforcing things on the back end. And to me, I totally agree with your analysis. To me, it's less important to worry about some small percentage of fraud or some small percentage of waste when there is such a massive impact right now and where every day that passes becomes harder and harder to unwind that impact. So I would not even be worried about those things as much. But I think, it, obviously, if the IRS is faster and delivers better enforcement, that's a much better choice. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, and I think that's where things are now trending. So hopefully we're iterating on the public policy level and, and we'll do something a little more in that direction. You know, it remains to be seen. Well, what kind of advice would you give to a small business person right now who's contemplating all these, these, these different programs and uncertain about what's going to happen in the future? What would you tell someone who's running a business, the CEO? Should they apply? Should they not apply? Should they apply for multiple things? What is the story? Yeah. So the first thing I'd say is, uh, uh, and I'll, I'll just click through three or four things here. There's no particular order other than they come up in my mind. Um, the phase two legislation, which was called FFCRA, Families First Coronavirus Response Act, I think, um, was uh, 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 entirely focused on having the federal government subsidize employers uh, who were who were you know required as re as a result of the plan, but also paid for by the government to offer paid sick leave to their employers. 
and we can come back and go deeper in the weeds just at a high level it's basically two weeks of paid sick leave um, at you know a reasonably uh, same salary there's some caps per day on it uh, for people who are themselves sick and seeking treatment um, and then a longer term up to 10 weeks of leave at a lower pay cap so it might be you know a partial uh, salary continuance or whatever uh, for people who are dealing with family members who are sick or whose kids are uh, not in school because the schools were closed or their childcare provider is just not available because of distancing or whatnot. Um, and that program actually was, ironically, set up to run through IRS. It, it uses payroll tax credits, but the tax credits are refundable and even advanceable. So uh, you could tomorrow, you know, take all your employees who are uh, dealing with their kids at home because the schools are closed put them on paid leave for up to 10 weeks, um, and the government will reimburse you, again, up to some partial per day amount. Um, and you can then the next day file with the IRS to get an advance against the amount that the government owes you. And the IRS reportedly is actually sending that money out pretty quickly. So that's just one you know, sort of emergency, any port in a storm kind of thing that I think people have an option to do and they haven't looked at. Now, one thing I should say, Chris, when I talk about any of these, and certainly when I'm giving advice is, I am not a lawyer, I'm not a CPA, uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a VC and a professor, uh, which means I'm not very useful for most things. So with all of this, the caveat is, please talk to your lawyer before you uh, take action on any of these and make sure you look at, you know, all of the rules and conditions or whatnot. Um, but the, just to emphasize there, FFCRA is designed to get money out pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people are overlooking that in the larger clamor about the loan programs that are in phase three of the CARES Act. Who is eligible for FFCRA? Obviously people who are actually out on sick leave, but then you mentioned employees who are dealing with kids at home, which I got to believe is most employees with kids. That, yeah, exactly. It's, it's anybody who has a kid whose school has been closed as a result of a government order um, or whose child care, it's a, they don't even have to be in school, whose child care provider is unavailable because of a stay-at-home order or similar, you know, issued by some government agency. So it, it affects, it certainly affects pretty much anyone who has kids um, and anyone who has family members who uh, are seeking medical treatment. That doesn't mean they have to be diagnosed with COVID. Uh, they just might, you know, want to stay home because they are coughing or they have a fever or, or whatever. So it's a pretty broad swath. Uh, and I think one thing people don't realize is FFCRA actually mandates that employers offer those leaves to their employees, but then, you know, the government will pay for it. So it is, it's pretty broadly applicable. And for whatever reason, I think because that legislation got passed a couple weeks before CARES, and it was actually before most states had gone into the stay-at-home mode, uh, it wasn't quite top of mind on, on the radar as, as, you know, PPP and CARES became two or three weeks later, just because of how fast the, the world changed in those three weeks. And now again, I apologize for diving into these details, but how does FFCRA and PPP interact? Because you could get FFCRA to cover 
the employees who have kids at home, but obviously you couldn't then also get PPP money for the same employees, or could you? It seems like that's not the intention. Uh, no, that's correct. Um, so to be clear, both of them involve wages. Um, and you, if you don't use FFCRA, you can use PPP funds to cover wages of employees uh, who are out sick. If you also apply for the tax credits through FFCRA, uh, you then have to back out whatever you receive through that program from whatever you uh, are allowed to use the funds for from PPP and certainly from whatever you're allowed to apply for as forgiveness on the PPP loan. So um, this is a higher level comment too, because we'll talk I'm sure in a minute about the EIDL, the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program, uh, which is yet another loan program uh, different conditions, different uses. But um, the most important thing with all these programs is in general, you can use them all as long as you are careful not to use them for the same thing. Uh, and you keep very good records to show you didn't use them for the same thing. So no double dipping, but as long as you don't double dip, the government actually wants you to use as many of these programs as apply to you. And so that would suggest that the government would say, hey, you know, why don't you go ahead and use FFCRA to get the money sooner but then if you're also applying for PPP, just make sure you back it out so that you're not double dipping. But it's actually in the government's interest. I mean, the government wants people to get money in their hands sooner. That's right. That's exactly right. Uh, that's one of the things where I feel like there's an understandable uh, conversation happening in social media, you know, which reflects the kind of post TARP outrage that we saw, again, understandably, uh, you know, from things like the Tea Party or whatnot. And who knows what we're going to see in a six months or two years from now after all this is done. But I, I think the difference here is uh, this is not the government trying to do financial things to make up for bad business decisions or, or risky business practices uh, that nonetheless the government feels like is in the public interest to, you know, subsidize. This is an exogenous health, public health issue that to the extent it's causing damage is not the result of anybody's bad business practices or decisions. Uh, certainly there are people who are, you know, prepared in a way that's more resilient for an unknown like this, but the government is not sort of trying to bail people out. The government is just trying to staunch the economic fallout uh, and anything that allows people to get the money more quickly is absolutely what the policymakers intend. And in fact, getting money to people more quickly is good for public health because it enables people to stay home. Whereas if it weren't the case, people would feel like from economic necessity, they needed to be out there and that's not good for them and that's not good for public health. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, there's definitely been some reactions to FFCRA about well, why should the government be paying people paying, you know, indirectly giving tax credits to employers to continue to pay people who are now going to stay home for two or 10 or 12 weeks. Because uh, by the way, you can do both, both parts of that. I didn't mention that. You, you know, like an employee can do two weeks that's their own and then another 10 weeks to take care of somebody else in their household. Um, you know, some people are, are saying, well, you're paying people to stay home. And th this was actually, there was a little bit of even political noise for, for 24 hours uh, back when that bill was being debated. But the reality is that's exactly the point. The government 
wants to pay employers to pay people to stay home and not come to work. And uh, I understand in a normal political world why that might be an outrage to some people, but in this world, it frankly is, I can't quite fathom why people don't understand why that is the objective. Well, I think that part of it is that it's a classic unfortunate phenomenon. The impact of the coronavirus is very uneven across the country. And so there are parts of the country that are very hard hit and there are parts of the country that are not. And people say to themselves, well, why should I pay for someone else's problems? But it's especially egregious to say that when we're talking about an exogenous event. It's not like anyone said, oh yes, I want my community to be more vulnerable to this virus. That's right, and, and to add something, because um, you see this reaction in things like, I don't know, hurricane relief, you know, certainly the reaction to uh, the way we've handled the hurricanes in Puerto Rico, et cetera, but, but also, you know, whether it's um, Harvey in Houston or, or Katrina or, or whatever, pick your favorite hurricane. The thing that, that I feel like um, it's not only that you're paying for people who rightly or wrongly chose to live in a place that was vulnerable to hurricanes. The difference here is that, uh, you know, I live in Santa Fe, Pe people in uh, South Florida or New Orleans or Houston, if their house is damaged by a hurricane, it doesn't really change the probability that my house is going to be damaged. Uh, but, but with this pandemic, that's exactly what happens is the more that we don't take care of people in the areas that are affected, the more that the people in the areas that aren't affected are going to be affected. So I sort of view like it, it actually is in everyone's interest to take care of people, especially in cases where you're not affected, but other people are. Uh, and I just, that logic seems to not be as broadly uh, followed as I would think, but. You know, as I you said, know. it's it's unfortunate. I agree with you 100%. Now let's add to our alphabet soup, the EI, DLs. So yeah, so I want to distinguish here. The SBA has for a long time had uh, two basic kind of programs. One is the what's called the 7A program and that's the kind of traditional business loan program. And then it's also had the ability to do these disaster loans um, which would get declared in the wake of hurricanes and, and whatnot. Um, and so the CARES Act replicates that by creating a new kind of 7A loan, which is PPP, and a new kind of disaster loan uh, called EIDL. Um, and just to be clear, you know, the, the existing 7A loans and the existing disaster loans that, that are in place before all this happened for other reasons, you know, they're still running that and there's some benefit in CARES for those people too. So if you you know, prior to February of 2020, if you already had an SBA 7A loan uh, or you had an SBA uh, disaster loan for something else, uh, there's now at least six months of uh, uh, not just deferred payment, actually the SBA will make your payments for you. Uh, and some other provisions, the term of those loans can be extended or whatnot. Other than these kinds of benefits for, for the subset of people who might care, you know, who are affected, you should check that out. Otherwise, I'm not going to talk more about that. I just now want to talk about the, the two new programs uh, through SBA in the CARES Act, which is PPP, the, the, the new form of 7A, and EIDL, which is what you asked about. Um, the EIDL is 
uh, a variable amount of loan up to $2 million. Uh, the SBA runs these loans directly as opposed to PPP, which we'll talk more about in a second, which run through uh, private banks that you know, are, are in cooperation with SBA. So EIDL is run by SBA directly as an agency, um, up to $2 million. There are a variety of sort of uh, 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 scenarios in which people have been damaged, largely not having to do with uh, payroll or employees, but rather with other things that have changed in a business for example, if you're, let's say you're a manufacturer or, or a retailer dealing with, uh, you have substantial you know, cost of goods in your business and those goods that you resell or that are ingredients in something you manufacture are coming from a supply chain that was in China, you know, Wuhan or wherever. Uh, and in January, your supply chain shut down. So suddenly you had to quickly alternatively source your, you know, those goods from some other location, and you had to pay a lot more to do that, you can ask SBA for an EIDL loan that will cover the amount of increased cost in your supply chain over what it historically has been as a result of, of, of this disaster, whether it's in the US or somewhere else. And there are three or four or five other scenarios. I, I, I don't wanna go exhaustively through all of them, but the point is um, EIDL loans are designed where you actually make the case and describe the specifics of your situation, and then the SBA reviews it. The other important aspect of EIDL loans is, um, uh, is as soon as you apply with the SBA, you are at the same time allowed to request an advance of the loan of up to $10,000. Uh, and uh, if your loan is subsequently not approved, you are allowed to keep the advance of up to $10,000 and it turns into a grant. So uh, unfortunately, the, the legislation actually required that the SBA send such advances out within three days of the application being filed and, and intended to just be automatic. You file for the loan, you automatically get the advance. And if the loan turns out to not be approved, you still get to keep the advance. Unfortunately, it's now been over a week since they've been running that program. And I have yet to hear of any reports of people getting the advances. And lots of reports, hard to verify that maybe SBA is not gonna give the full 10 grand, but instead it'll limit it to $1,000 and et cetera, et cetera. But unfortunately, that's another example of uh, a program that was intended to get at least $10,000 out to any business that applied within three days. And it also is not working, which is just a tragic, a tragic situation. Now again, because we have all these different programs, how do they intersect? Because the EIDL is, again, different than the PPP, which you're about to get into. Uh, is it like we described earlier with the FFCRA, sorry for all the acronyms, where you can apply for all of these, but you have to disentangle later on to make sure you're not double dipping? That's right. Um, it, so you can explicitly apply for both EIDL and PPP. Again, EIDL, you apply through the SBA itself on its website. PPP, you have to go apply through a private bank that handles the loans on behalf of SBA. Um, it's important that you use them for different purposes. So generally speaking, PPP is, is pretty limited to using for things that have to do with payroll employees. With, you know, some corner conditions I'll talk about in a second. EIDL is much wider, but much more customized. So PPP is intended to be kind of almost 
semi-automatic. Um, I mean, clearly you have to be justified and deserve it, but but you don't have to go through some you know long narrative application of you know why your employees had to be laid off versus somebody else's. Um, the other thing is PPP has a provision that if you wish, if you apply for an EIDL first, um, you can and, and get approved and then apply for PPP later, uh, you can actually roll the EIDL into the PPP and the PPP has much more favorable terms. Uh, the, 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 the most important of which being that PPP is forgivable, you know, as long as you meet certain tests. And EIDLs, just to be clear, are not forgivable. They, they are still, you know, disaster loans through SBA that do have to be paid back eventually, other, other than the uh, up to 10 grand advance that I mentioned. But so let's, uh, I'll, I'll use a concrete example. There's a friend of mine who is a uh, public speaker and consultant, very similar to me, but this is his entire livelihood. He doesn't do anything else. And obviously in a time in which you can't travel, that's gone to zero. So in his case, what should he do? Should he apply for an EIDL and a PPP and then roll over the EIDL into the PPP? What combination of things should he be thinking about? Yeah, so the first thing I would say is um, as long as he is set up in a way uh, where he's been paying payroll tax uh, with, you know, through the IRS, which most self-employed people do as well, even though he's maybe just paying himself, uh, you know, if he's in a situation where, you know, his kids are at home, uh, he might consider putting himself on 10-week leave to take care of his kids while they're forced to be out of school. And, and, and he, they are at home. His wife works in the healthcare industry, and he is now caring for two young children at home. Yeah, that's right. So, so he should be eligible for the FFCRA refundable tax credit that, I, that we just talked about. He can then apply for EIDL. Uh, and request the up to 10K grant. And hopefully they get the kinks in that worked out sooner rather than later. But, you know, I I'm describing what the legislation says it's supposed to work. <laughs> uh, and with PBP, we'll talk about, there's actually some explicit discrepancy between the implementation rules and, and the law. With EIDL, I'm not aware of any such discrepancy. It's just that the SBA has not yet been able to fulfill the, the required timeframes uh, that were set out in the legislation, which, you know, I don't 100% penalize them for. I mean, they were asked to, the legislation passed for EIDL on a Friday, and they had the website up on a Sunday night. Um, and the fact that they weren't getting the money out within three days, you know, I can understand that. Keep in mind that almost everyone at SBA is also working from home. And that's not the kind of organization that historically had a lot of IT uh, uh, capability to enable that because of government security rules and whatnot. So there, there's a whole other administrative, logistical, and implementation set of challenges for these agencies trying to figure out how to do all of this in record time under conditions that they've never worked under before. Um, so I have some empathy, certainly for the individual people trying to do all this work. You know, whether or not we should have empathy for the agency itself and the government you know, that's overseeing them or whatnot is an issue that's probably not productive to get into any more uh, than that. Um, so I feel like there's one piece I didn't answer. Can you, can we go back and? Oh yeah. So you, oh, you yes, were so saying for my, for my friend with the kids at home, his wife works in oh, healthcare. Yeah, yeah. So he said FFCRA because he's taking care of the kids. 
EIDL, although again, that as we, as we heard, there may be some issues with implementation of that. And I guess you were also gonna mention PPP. That's right. So, and then I think he should apply for PPP. Now he's gonna have to do that through a private lender. Mm -hmm. And uh, the rules for process and documentation for self-employed, independent contractor, gig worker, uh, sole proprietor type people are different because they often have different uh, you know, payroll records, et, et cetera. And SBA historically has not, they have not been eligible for SBA programs before. CARES legislation, uh, as I said earlier, widened the aperture of who can apply to you know, beyond traditional for-profit small businesses to these individuals and self-employed people, also to nonprofits, food co-ops, veterans organizations, tribal businesses. They, they tried to make it as wide as possible. They wanted as much as possible, policymakers wanted to be able to get money to support the payroll of essentially every organization that employs people or pays them regardless of structurally how that happens. And it, it partly that decision to make that as wide as possible is what's causing some of this implementation issue. Um, so I think realistically for your friend, uh, supposedly today is actually the first day, so this is Friday the 10th, uh, uh, is supposedly the first day that private lenders doing the PVP program are going to start processing uh, PVP loan applications for individuals and self-employed, etc. I've heard a lot of, uh, you know, data point or at least anecdotes that they're not ready and that some banks are not, that it's too much of a change uh, and they're not going to do it at all. So I'm very worried about that program. But again, before we talk about the implementation issues, just in terms of advice to your friend over what he should do based on what the law says should happen, he should do FFCRA, he should apply for an EIDL, at least get the advance grant up to 10 grand, and then apply for PVBP, sorry, PVP. If, you know, the, the, the basis for his business is pretty much lost payroll, then he probably will want to refi the EIDL if he does get approved for that after the advance. He should probably refi that under the PPP because it'll be hard for him to, to have enough separate use of proceeds to justify having both of those loans. And that's why they made the EIDL refiable into the PPP is for people like that. For yeah. other businesses, you know, if he was a traveling salesman selling steak knives, you know, he should use the EIDL to help cover issues he has with his inventory of steak knives and use the PVP to pay for his lost, you know, uh, self-employment income. Got it. So he can cover so can different cover. ways to financially support. Uh, it's just that they're not going to cover the same payroll to the same person two or three different ways. That's right. And, and, and just to be clear, each of the application processes are different and have different forms, but they all contain some uh, representation uh, or, or certification for that you're using the funds for a reason that you have not applied or, or that you haven't um, that you haven't intended to use other programs for which you've applied for the same purpose. And so you have to certify that to be true. And if you lie about that or you violate it after having certified it, you've now violated federal law and there are pretty substantial criminal penalties for that. So 
you know, I just want to be clear. It, it's people thinking they can get cute. That, that's not the kind of thing to play around with because they will be enforcing that stuff, particularly on the back end. Um, uh, but it is the policymakers intent that if you do have legitimate different kinds of, of economic impact, you should absolutely use as many of these programs are, as are legitimately appropriate and relevant for your circumstance. This does feel like a classic walks like a duck, quacks like a duck situation. If you're doing things that are to basically help support a payroll for your employees or for yourself, that's fine. If you're trying to get cute with it and double dip, hey, they're going to catch you. That's right. Yeah. And just one final clarification for, because I, I, so my friend is taking care of kids, but he's also losing income, but it feels like those two should be the same pool, right? He shouldn't get paid for taking care of the kids and get paid for his loss of income. So FFCRA and PPP shouldn't have both of those, right? Correct. So if he takes the tax credit for FFCRA, he will have to certify in, in his use of funds for PPP that he's not using that money to also pay for the cost of leave that he's providing in his case to himself. Mm -hmm. So there's, there could be some timing issues. He might want to do PPP now and, and take the FFCRA tax credit later in the year. PPP is only runs through June 30th, whereas the FFCRA is through December, I believe. Uh, or he could do it vice versa. He could take the 10 weeks of leave, you know, retroactive, the tax credit to cover the 10 weeks of leave to watch his kids, retroactive to whenever his kid's school was formally closed, mm -hmm. and then apply for a PPP that picks up, you know, on, starting week 11, uh, that's going to cover him paying his own payroll to himself at that point. But you absolutely can't cover the same pay either to yourself or to anyone with, with both of those mechanisms. Just to Got be it. So cool. certainly you couldn't cover the same 10 week period, but if he were actually to put himself on leave for 10 weeks and then replace his payroll for a subsequent 10 weeks or two and a half months or however it works out in PPP, that would actually be considered legitimate. That's my understanding. And again, the trick there is to make sure that uh, the, on the calendar basis, the 10 weeks ends before the June 30th deadline for filing for PVP. Yep. Um, and there's also some risk in that because there's a finite pool of money on PVP. The FFCRA tax credits are, there's, there's no ceiling. It, anybody who's eligible can take them. Got it. Uh, yeah. uh, whereas for PVP, there's this finite pool. Now, a lot of people are freaking out about the rate at which the PVP pool seems to be uh, becoming drained. And I, and that's, legitimate uh, concern. The policymakers are also very concerned about it. You know, they have their own models, just like all these epidemiological models to predict the, the spread of the disease. People have all these models for the rate at which these loan program fundings will get used up. And it's clear that the PPP uh, uh, fund usage is faster than they thought. So there are conversations going on right now. There was an attempt yesterday to pass legislation in the Senate to add another 250 billion to PVP. Um, that failed for reasons I won't get into, but it, there's bipartisan agreement that should be done. So that will happen pretty soon, whether it happens in its own sort of emergency allocation or as part of this larger phase four package, I think is anybody's guess right now, but, but they are gonna reload a lot more money onto PVP for sure. 
Got it. So the high level message that I think we send to everyone is uh, there are a variety of these different programs. You may in fact qualify for multiple programs uh, to the extent that the need that you're meeting is not an overlapping need then you could potentially benefit from one of, the, one of these programs. And as always, we're not lawyers, uh, but just remember the intent is for the government to try to support people during this difficult time. And the goal is to get money into your hands. That's right. There, there's one other program quickly, Chris, I want to just touch on. It has gotten very little attention. Uh, it's called the Employee Retention Tax Credit. Uh, and that's also part of CARES. Uh, and it works functionally similar to the paid leave tax credit under FFCRA, but it does not require, um, it, it, there's no test that you have to be eligible to take leave, et cetera. The employee retention credit uh, is basically, uh, you have to show that your revenue has declined by more than 50% year over year. Uh, and that can be true in any quarter, at least for this calendar year. So. Even if it hasn't fallen yet, it might fall in Q2 and you can apply for it then. Um, and it covers uh, up to, I'm gonna get this right, 50% uh, of the wages you pay to employees, including I believe yourself for self-employed people, uh, uh, up to a maximum of a $5,000 credit per quarter, i.e. up to about $10,000 in wages per employee per quarter. So working backwards, for people who, who make less than about $3,300 a month, uh, whether it's you or employees you have, there are circumstances where the employee retention tax credit is actually a better deal. Um, mm -hmm. And it also is refundable and advanceable with the same process I mentioned earlier. It's run through IRS, not SBA. So you don't have to go through all these loan applications or whatnot. Um, but it is, you can only take the credit if you qualify based on this revenue drop it has to be pretty massive. Um, but there are people like restaurants and haircutters and whatnot through, who I actually think this program might be better. It's not a great fit for people who have uh, not yet experienced that much of a revenue drop um, or who have higher paid, you know, average employee wages just because of the cap of $5,000 per employee per quarter is, is you know, not that high. Um, but there are a whole lot of businesses for whom that actually works really well and is likely to be much more efficient to get, actually get some money than, than waiting through the PPP loan program. Wow, that really sounds wow, important really because sounds I rarely hear about this being mentioned and yet it seems like it would help out the businesses that these programs are designed to help out, like the restaurants that have been hit so hard. Yeah, one of the things, I mean, it kind of as an aside, one of the things that concerns me is the, and, and this may be my own bubble filter bias of the world I inhabit, so I don't know this is true, but my experience of what's going on is that most of the conversation around these programs in the media um, and, and on social media has an overt bias toward uh, the kinds of companies that tend to have either founders, managers, or investors who are more active on social media, because that's where the traditional media is getting their quotes from, which is to say, like, you know, the attention being placed on VC-backed companies right now uh, is way more disproportionately high than their actual percentage of either the number of businesses affected or the economic impact. 
That's not to say one way or another. I, I think that VC back companies should generally be eligible if they meet the criteria for these programs like anyone else. But the amount of uh, oxygen being taken up by the conversation around that issue, when the reality is 99.9% .9 of all of this right now at least is affecting jobs, payroll and revenue of Main Street employers, um, I, I just think is a tragedy, you know, and one of the reasons I've been so active on Twitter talking about this stuff is I really want to see that those people who don't have the ability to hire a lawyer to advise them on this, um, who don't have, you know, the time in the day because now they had to lay off their staff. So they're, they're running the takeout operation of the restaurant by themselves. They don't have time to be on Twitter or reading the media or whatnot. They just don't know where to go. And the media is doing, in my view, uh, a suboptimal job of talking about lots of these other alternatives, which might actually be a lot better than a PPP loan program, but they don't have the attendant sort of political controversy that makes for, for good headlines around, you know, whether rich VC-backed companies should get money or not. Yeah, and again, I consider myself a relatively sophisticated consumer of media, and so I was aware of PPP and EIDL I might have been peripherally aware of FFCRA, but I was completely unaware of this tax, this other tax credit. So uh, that's a, a clear sign. The, the employee retention credit, ERC is what it's yeah. called, just to add to the alphabet for everyone. It, it, it is amazing how many more acronyms all of us have had to learn in the past month or two. Uh, and uh, there is probably another exponential growth there. <laughs> for sure, yeah. It's a little bit like on Wheel of Fortune. The value of each letter keeps going up, though. <laughs> so that, I think, to me, I mean, I've learned a lot from this conversation. I hope everyone who's listening in has learned a lot as well. Is there anything else that we haven't covered yet that we should cover? Because I've taken a lot of your time already. I would just say there is a huge um, uh, reservoir of availability of, 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 of time and assistance capacity sitting out there in people who are or have the ability to, to be reasonably sophisticated about this stuff. So I'm thinking about, for example, you know, uh, all of the people who are on furlough being laid off or, or just finding their, they're still employed, thankfully, but frankly, they're, they're you know, there's not as much to do. Uh, or they're distracted, understandably, uh, and they're wanting to help, but they're not doctors, and they don't know how to get PPE supplies from China. Like, there's an awful lot of people pinging me saying, how can I help? Because I don't really understand what I have to offer. You know, I'm, I'm just some programmer uh, who writes, you know, code for, for a web app, and our traffic is down, and so, you know, whatever. I, there are so many Main Street restaurants you know, uh, haircutters, et cetera. I would really like to see uh, people think about just go to that restaurant and, and instead of just ordering the takeout which, or buying a gift card, which is awesome, you know, ask the owner if they need help figuring all this out. And then you be the one who stays up for two hours each night, you know, helping to figure out on their behalf because they don't have the time or the background to navigate all this. I think that's actually, a, a huge way in which a big swath of the workers who are still employed or at least have the means to get through this could be helping the people who are harder hit. Uh, you know, and, and I think that we would all benefit from that. So 
I don't yet know of anyone who's coordinating all that. Uh, I would love for somebody to do it. I don't, I, I'm, you know, up to my ears in alligators with just trying to navigate all this stuff and communicate myself. But uh, for anybody who's looking for something to do, you could help. That's a, a huge opportunity right now. Well, I think that that is fantastic. And I may very well try to publicize that. Now, for all those people who hopefully will volunteer to help with that, obviously they can follow you on Twitter. Have you also compiled a, a guide, a blog post, anything like that that I should point them towards? Um, I haven't. There are a bunch of people who have, and I've pointed to them. Um, Mark Suster had a pretty good resource up the other day. NVCA ha uh, has been doing a fantastic job. They have an entire page uh, with, you know, probably many, many dozens of links to things, not just to venture-backed, you know, not just relevant to venture-backed companies, to entrepreneurs of all types. Um, you know, every law firm, accounting firm, tax prep firm, at least that I've ever interacted with in my life has been sending me emails with their own such aggregation. Uh, so I don't want to point to one over the other. I think, you know, there's value in all of them. Uh, I, I think what I've kind of decided is the world doesn't need one more aggregation. It, 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 there's, there's more and more information coming online every day. What it needs now is people who have the combination of, you know, whatever skill set to be able to navigate those links, read the pages, figure out what it means, and the time to do it on behalf of the people who don't either have that skill set or just don't have the time to be doing it. So um, uh, I don't feel like information anymore is the gating factor. It's the connecting people who have the skill set and the time with the businesses that need that help. Got it. Well, if that's the case, I think that this podcast will be a good way to publicize that notion. Uh, I'll also try to spread that idea around myself and try to convince other people to pick it up. Trevor, I want to thank you so much, not just for coming on this podcast, obviously, but for all the work that you've put in. I have not during the entire time this crisis has been going on, had a more informative conversation around these different programs and the different things that actual business owners could do. So I think everyone just owes you a tremendous debt of gratitude. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate that truly. Um, and, and it is, I'm glad to be of help. Uh, I've been incredibly touched by the number of people who've said that it's been helpful, uh, where, you know, I sort of jokingly say, like, all I'm trying to do is find something so that I don't go stir crazy that helps me fall asleep every night. And reading federal legislation is a good way to fall asleep every night. Um, but on a serious note, I, I think the most important thing right now is for people to find something they can do to help someone else. Because that, in, at least in my experience, is the fastest way to feel, you know, to, to not get overwhelmed psychologically or emotionally by all of this is it's not actually taking care of yourself. That's important. But if you can take care of someone else as well, and I just feel incredibly fortunate to have found this little tiny niche for a moment where I'm able to do that. And it definitely has helped my own psychological and emotional well-being. And so I, I'm not saying this to be falsely modest. I, I actually feel like I'm benefiting from doing this as much as anyone uh, who's listening or following me is. And that's even more reason for people to take this up and to help others. Trevor, thank you so much for joining me today. And I know I will be look for, looking forward to speaking with you again soon. Thanks, Chris. Be well, stay safe.